Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts are community powered, and for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community owned and community run media. Happy listening. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Dr. Alexander Hinton. Alexander is the Director of the Centre for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights. He's a Professor in Anthropology at Rutgers University, and he is the author of, amongst many other books, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the US. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, yeah, please use Alex, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. I guess just to begin with, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, you know, thanks so much for asking that question. It might be useful for me to read just briefly from the beginning of the book that sort of tells that story. So the introduction of the book is titled The Snake. And I should mention that the cover of the book, besides having It Can Happen Here in large uh, block letters in white, has the picture of a large snake with its mouth agape rising out of the letters with the picture of Washington, D.C. in the background in the U.S. So here we go. Introduction, the snake. I want to read you something. Presidential candidate Donald Trump stands before a raucous audience at a campaign rally at the Youngstown Airport in Vienna, Ohio. It is March 14, 2016, the day before the state's Republican primary. Trump had arrived on his personal jet, featuring gold-plated seatbelts and Rolls-Royce engines. It is painted red, white, and blue and emblazoned with Trump's name, which is also printed in thick, bold letters on each of the ramp stairs he descended before walking to the nearby podium, while the crowd cheered and recorded his entrance on their phones. Some hold Make America Great Again signs. Trump invokes the slogan several times during his Vienna stump speech, homing in on the country's allegedly dismal state of affairs, job losses, bad deals, manufacturing decline, and decrepit infrastructure. We're becoming third world, Trump laments. The solution is to vote him into office. We're going to do things this country isn't used to doing, Trump explains. It's called, we're going to win, win. To underscore this point, Trump offers a story. I want to read you this because I love it, Trump tells the crowd. The story, he continues, is based on a 1968 song by Al Wilson, an African-American soul singer. It's called The Snake, Trump tells the crowd, and then begins. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted by the dew. Oh, well, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. She wrapped him up all cozy in a curvature of silk, then laid him by the fireside with honey and some milk. 
Now she hurried home from work that night. As soon as she'd arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived. Now she stroked his pretty skin and she kissed him and held him tight. But instead of saying thank you, that snake gave her a vicious bite. I saved you, cried that woman, and you've bit me heavens why. You know your bite is poisonous and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. It's not the first time Trump has related this parable, which is becoming a staple at his campaign rallies. The snake speaks to the heart of his campaign message. The dangerous, malicious outsiders, symbolized by the the vicious snake, posed to the U.S., symbolized by the tender-hearted woman who takes it in. Usually, as is the case in Vienna, Trump precedes the parable by warning his audience about the dangers posed by terrorists and immigrants and other non-whites in the country. This language of borders, dangerous outsiders, and a nation besieged is familiar to me. My research focuses on genocide and mass violence. Indeed, on the day of Trump's Vienna campaign speech, I was on the other side of the world testifying on precisely these issues at an international tribunal in Cambodia. If Trump had the snake, the Khmer Rouge had the crocodile, an imagined enemy invader threatening their revolutionary body politic. Such connections between the past and the present are a central plank of this book, which argues that the danger of genocide and atrocity crimes in the U.S. looms much larger than most people realize. Yeah, so thanks. Anyways, that sort of sets up the sort of two key moments in the juxtaposition that got me to uh, to think about the book. And it also relates, you know, sort of brings forth different key planks. For example, Trump uh, and his incitement are one of the key planks that structure the book. My background is someone who's studied, who's worked in Cambodia in particular a long time as an anthropologist, but as a comparative genocide scholar as well. It's another sort of structuring plank of the book. A third one uh, is the lessons motif that I mentioned at the end there. Uh, and in this sense, uh, the notion of lessons of the past and also my experience as a professor teaching in Trump's USA. And the fourth, uh, fourth, and there are actually, I guess, five planks. The fourth plank is the writing style. Uh, so the book is written intentionally in a narrative style as it moves forward from 2016 into 2020. And the preface actually hits the capital insurrection. So it, it touches on uh, 2021. And it also uses setting, dialogue, uh, and other literary strategies, which uh, a lot of academic books don't do. They're, they use expository prose. Then the fifth uh, plank, if you will, which is a absolutely central one, and the one that probably we'll be talking about most today, is the resurgence of far-right extremism under Trump, or maybe we should say the uh, you know hyper-visibility of it. This isn't something that began... It was already, well, it's something that was already, you could already see in March of 2016 at the time he was giving his rallies uh, because he had far right extremists uh, in the crowds. Uh, sometimes they were providing security. Uh, there was one incident, I believe it was March, March 1st, maybe in Kentucky, uh, where Trump said there was a, uh, some protesters, including a black woman, and he said, get him out of here. And a uh, somewhat notorious uh, neo Nazi, Matthew Heimbach, you know, roughed her up and helped uh, get her out. He was there with some other members of the, the traditionalist workers party. And even at this time, Trump was using, uh, he was doing this from the start, racist dog whistles to very directly play into white nationalist themes, but also to appeal to far right extremists. And uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, uh, the snake is a longstanding anti-Semitic trope. Uh, so the invocation of the snake also 
ties into notions of white genocide, Jewish conspiracy. But so, you know, so I was thinking about all these things uh, in 20, 2016, but the event that really then set, catalyzed my decision to write the book was Charlottesville, which, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, in the U.S., we saw people uh, marching, saying, blood in the soil, you will not replace us, or Jews will not replace us. My professional association, uh, the American Anthropological Association, called for members to have teach-ins on race uh, to educate people and try and understand Charlottesville. And so I held a teach-in, and that's actually the subject of the first full chapter of the book. Um, and then, you know, out of all of this, the sort of two key questions that inform it are sort of the Charlottesville why, you know, why suddenly were far-right extremists marching uh, when being egged on uh, by a U.S. president? And then the other one is named in the title, uh, Could It Happen Here? Maybe we'll talk about it later, but it plays off a uh, novelist, Sinclair Lewis. Uh, he wrote a novel, I think it was 1933, four, something like that, as Hitler was rising to power. Uh, and it was titled, It Can't Happen Here. Anyway, so my, my title is a, uh, a play on that. One thing that occurs to me in terms of the the parable of the snake, who in this representation is the um, deadly outsider that's uh, foolishly uh, taken in. But the other snake that I'm thinking of that occurs to me is the one that appears on the uh, the Gadsden flag, which yeah. is usually inscribed with "Don't tread on me." Did that kind of enter into your thinking at all when you were, um, or, or Trump's invocation of the snake? Because I'm also aware that many of his uh, fans would carry this flag with them to uh, pro-Trump rallies. Yeah, no, that's the power. You're right on the mark. That's the power of symbols is they can be invoked in different sorts of ways. So obviously in the parable of the snake, which is actually based on an Aesop fable, uh, ironically, and then even more ironically, as I mentioned, sort of reworked during the civil rights movement in the U.S., into a soul song. Uh, it's uh, And then he reworks it again. But the, the way you frame a symbol inflects its meaning in a given context. So uh, in that sense, I think at, in terms of the parable itself, he was very directly playing on the negative connotations, uh, the trope of dangerous outsiders. He would reuse this later. You know, So he, he told this a lot on the campaign trail in 2016. He told it in 2018 at the CPAC conference, uh, which is a big gathering of conservatives. And then he began to tell it right before the pandemic hit in 2020 during the presidential campaign. But what happens with you know the power of language is you rework the symbol and the story to fit the moment. So if he was talking primarily uh, and largely about immigrant others, which inflect to non-white others in 2016, by 2020, his language was re being revamped to talk about law and criminality, uh, which is our code words in the U.S. Uh, for black and brown people and their, as he would often say, radical far left uh, allies. Uh, and that sort of language, actually, for those of us who study these issues is kind of somewhat eerie because you think of the, uh, the book, The Turner Diaries, which was written uh, by William Pierce, the physicist turned neo-Nazi back in the 70s. He has the Day of the Rope. Uh, where they go out uh, as they're in the midst of annihilating every non-white in the world, but they get the white uh, race traders, then they string them up. And just as a little bounce towards 20, uh, you know, to 2021, of course, we saw uh, gallows and nooses uh, appear at the, on the grounds of the Capitol at that time. But yeah, so the snake has other valences, and it was actually 
but the valences there uh, often harken back to uh, Benjamin Franklin and the early origins of U.S. history. And join or die was this famous slogan, and it was taken and reworked on one of the Unite the Right posters. And then that poster, uh, they it represented the colonies. And this was, again, inflected towards the British. But the they had put instead of the colonies were originally the uh, this uh, image had had the colonies, they reworked it and put the different groups that had united on the right in terms of national socialism, the alt-right, so on and so forth. So yeah, symbols are powerful. Uh, and the, the snake certainly is one of those. Many people have seen the Trump administration as being sort of aberration within US politics, a little hiccup uh, on the, you know, inexorable march towards the future. Other people see it slightly differently as uh, just a, maybe a more gauche manifestation of a white supremacist system. I was wondering what your take was on him, the Trump phenom. Yeah, no, uh, that's, a, that's a great question uh, and an important question. Uh, so the U.S., we have one of the sort of conceptual blockages to considering the question that can happen here. Uh, is the myth, it's a form of denial, uh, and it's largely informed by the myth of American exceptionalism, which is this idea that the U.S. occupies, uh, in many versions, a God-given special place uh, in the world to bring progress and prosperity you know, to other countries. And this was reworked later to be, talk about human rights. And sometimes, you know, they talk about the, you know, the light shining, the beacon on the hill to other, to, uh, other peoples uh, who are suffering. Yeah, so this goes on. So immediately after the Capitol insurrection, and this also occurred after Charlottesville and has taken place uh, throughout uh, U.S. history, people said, well, this isn't us. This isn't America. This isn't the U.S. Uh, and so we have the recurrence uh, of this denial. But what happens, and there are actually, I would say, two key sort of blockages, and maybe we can talk about the other one, which is the way far-right extremists are framed as racists and haters, which speaks to a truth, but it also diverts us from history and structure. But we can sort of put that aside. But because of the this form of denial, it leads uh, people in the U.S., many people, uh, to see an event like Charlottesville and to dismiss it as something that uh, is done by a few bad apples in a context that uh, really is an aberration. So a lot of my book, um, and as I said before, parts of it are actually set in the classroom uh, in a narrative style, dialogic style, uh, with students, conversations, trying to work through, in this case, in the chapter called Charlottesville Teach-In, uh, Trump's statement, there were very fine people on both sides. And so, again, I could speak a long time on that, but speaking directly to your point, part of that was uh, what we did in the class was to historicize systemic uh, white power in the United States, going back to the uh, early origins of the country and the continuities through time. And when you look at that history and those continuities, you see that, no, in fact, it's not an aberration. It's something uh, that should be looked at as symptomatic uh, of what's been here a long time. And it's something that people need to grapple with uh, because of this denial. It hasn't been. I should say, you know, in the U.S. at this moment, and again, it's impossible to sort of look into the future broadly, but there is, in part because of uh, the George Floyd protests, uh, Black Lives Matter, on the grassroots, people are much more aware of and speaking about issues of race than they were, uh, for example, even during the Obama administration, which led some people to say, uh, you know, the U.S. has moved past its troubled ra racist past. So, there, you know, this is sort of the odd 
flip side of the Trump era. And hopefully that will remain uh, in the past tense uh, because there is the threat that he may, uh, he may come back again. He was just actually campaigning uh, in North Carolina. But, you know, some people, people here are now grappling with this. Uh, people are revamping curriculums. There's a huge pushback that centers on a controversy about a New York Times magazine issue on 1619, which basically said the U.S. has to deal with uh, its early history, Jamestown, and the history of enslavement. And there's a massive debate taking place about that versus the Trump administration at the time through a human rights commission and an educational commission focused in on 1776 saying, oh, we, you know, all you want to talk about is the bad stuff. Uh, you don't talk about any of the good stuff. So this this debate's going on in the U.S. Uh, at the moment. But I think the one good thing is, you know, even if we had, we have these dismissals and the denial, people are more aware now. Uh, and that's, uh, if we can, a, a small bit of optimism and something good that came out of a really bad time. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Alexander Hinton about genocide. We've had the similar debates about uh, history in Australia, given also its um, similar circumstances, being a colonial settler state and the uh, former Prime Minister dubbed those who wanted to um, pay attention or draw attention to these facts we're adopting a, a black armband view of history. But in terms of Trump, do you think there's anything especially novel about his adoption and deployment of racist and white supremacist discourse? No, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and I guess it's sort of a yes and no answer. Uh, in one sense, every historical moment uh, is different, even as it has continuities with the past. So, you know, the US and this long history uh, of systemic white power uh, that dates back, uh, you know, even beyond 1619. The one thing about the 1619 project is it tends to inflect uh, towards enslavement. But as you just said, we also, uh, you know, have a bit of a problem with Southern colonialism in the U.S. Uh, and that still is being pushed out of sight. And I think maybe Australia has reckoned with it more, even if it's controversial, with that piece of the puzzle. I actually wrote a, uh, an op-ed in a journal called Sapiens calling for a truth commission on white supremacy that would specifically not just address enslavement, even though that would be obviously a huge part of it, but would look at this broader history. Uh, and it's something that, you know, that's not really on the radar at the moment here, and, uh, and hopefully it will be. Yeah, so the, the current debates in terms of Trump, what was, you know, he fit right into this history. He drew on the, what was called the Southern strategy that emerged after the civil rights movement, where, uh, as before the civil rights movement, uh, it was, you know, okay, maybe not okay, but it, it occurred that people would use, uh, explicitly racist language on the Senate floor, for example, and a number of Southern Democrats during, uh, the era of Jim Crow in the U.S., constantly we're pushing this sort of different we're using racist language promoting demanding that the u.s continue to implement a system that allowed some places to uh, have racist laws and at the u.s right now this is a new debate because of new state laws linked to voting which echo this tradition and also we have a filibuster that's directly linked to this uh, past of trying to maintain uh, where certain states wanted to maintain their ability to continue to impose a white supremacist system. So he, he emerged, and then, you know, we have the civil rights movement. Suddenly, 
uh, states couldn't formulate, politicians couldn't formulate things in quite that way. So they begin to use coded language, including the trope of criminality uh, that I mentioned earlier was one of many. And so Trump directly played on this. I think, you know, we have like Patrick Buchanan, George Wallace, uh, you know, even Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, uh, we found out have used uh, racist slurs in the uh, in the White House. Uh, so it's something that was sort of commonplace. I remember when I was growing up watching racist cartoons uh, on television on Sundays, right? And they were still running. Now we look at those historical artifacts, but I actually remember when they were on the uh, on the TV. But what? So with this history in mind, he directly taps into this long tradition, but. With him, uh, you know, this often sounds odd, but I think he's a he's a charismatic person, uh, and he attracts a huge, a huge amount of attention. Uh, he ap- knows how to appeal to a huge number of people. This comes in part, and again, this is distinctive about him to his longstanding entertainment history. Maybe he shares a bit of that with Ronald Reagan. And so he knows how to work up a crowd. He took these tendencies that were sort of there in the past and amplified them dramatically. He brought in Stephen Miller, who uh, ironically, even though he's Jewish, uh, was pushing a replacement uh, replacement discourses and policies uh, in the U.S. government uh, really hard uh, throughout the administration, uh, which was a really difficult thing. And what so ultimately, uh, and I talk about this in the second part of the book, you know, what I think was most distinct about his administration, whereas if other politicians would sometimes invoke these, would use racist dog whistles and would sort of speak to the crowd and inflame and try and inflame uh, people with white nationalist viewpoints. And I might just add that it's not a small number of people. If we think of the far hard right, there are a much larger number of people uh, who hold white nationalist light views or are sympathetic to them. And I really think we saw that coalesce towards the end of the Trump administration. And for me, that was what was most terrifying was the sort of coalition of, of groups that had come together and that stand in contrast to the groups that came together in Charlottesville, which more of the alt-right and the far hard right. Uh, suddenly we had QAnon, uh, Christian nationalist, uh, sort of rabid uh, Trump supporters all banding together with militias and other groups coming together. And he, by that time, and this again is another thing that's distinct about him, he, through the use of Twitter uh, in particular, uh, and his longstanding erosion, not just of institutions in the U.S., uh, and as an aside, even today we're finding out daily almost that new things had happened. So we just found uh, out that Trump tried to mobilize in Jan- late December, early January, just tried to mobilize the Justice Department to investigate allegations of uh, state voter fraud, uh, you know, yet another step. But that's just a tip of the iceberg. There were many, many different things that occurred. And so to wrap up, you know, he had mobilized these white nationalist, uh, white power uh, tendencies. He had created this notion of alternative facts, which was Kellyanne Conway's term, but the lying press, uh, the notion there's deep state, there's a deep state that's eroding the truth, and that he was the one who was giving the truth. And people believed him. A huge number of people believed him. And again, I'm, you know, for in the US, as we moved into the end of 2020 into early 2021, 
amid uh, so scholars uh, who look at risk assessment for mass atrocity, mass violence. One of the key factors is upheaval. And we already had a bad situation here in 2019, 2018 and before. But when you add in the pandemic, economic collapse, so massive social movements, and talk about civil wars and coups into that, the risk factors, uh, you know, the, the alarm bells were going off and we were in a really bad place. And what I find, you know, so if we were, if you think about it as like a kettle on a stove, uh, we went from 2019, uh, where we might say the situation, the danger level in the U.S. was a rapid simmer. Uh, into the fall of 2020, it was a high boil. Uh, Trump eventually left office. You know, I'd say we're still in a rapid simmer here, and Trump is threatening to come back. But I'll just leave you with one other thing in terms of the U.S. and the Capitol insurrection, uh, which was absolutely awful. But I sometimes think, well, what if there hadn't been a Capitol insurrection? What if Trump hadn't lost his Twitter outlet for incitement, right? We had armed, massive amount of arms in the U.S., militias who were ready to act, huge numbers of people who supported him uh, and believed the lie that the U.S. election was stolen. You know, I think we could have been in a much, much worse situation. And that's a situation in which atrocity crimes could well have taken place. And we're not out of the hot water yet. You did devote a, a chapter to Charlottesville. And it's a key moment in the, I guess, um, evolution of this movement in the United States. One of the principal organizers was a, a man called Jason Kessler. And he appears at various points in the in your book. But just recently, I happened to check, and Jason remains on Twitter, unlike his um, hero Trump. But he now describes himself as a civil rights advocate and journalist, which I think is interesting. And I wonder, given that the book and in your work you paid close attention to to language and, and to meaning, what does it mean that someone like Kessler is now repositioning themselves as a civil rights advocate and as a journalist. Yeah, you know that's a that's a great question, uh, and I also follow him on Twitter. As it sounds like you do, and I've sort of watched him uh, through time change and shift. Rich, Richard Spencer, as well, has uh, undergone some recent shifts. You know, one thing you find is that the actors who are involved in this heavily, uh, maybe in part due to the sanctions and costs uh, that are brought to bear through doxing uh, and sort of ostracism uh, and other mechanisms. Matthew Heimbach, uh, the person I mentioned before from the Traditionalist Workers Party, he also has sort of left the movement. There's a long story to him as well. And so you have different people, they they kind of shift over time. Uh, and I think there was a huge amount of pressure put on uh, a number of the leaders uh, in addition to their being banned from Twitter, most of them and other outlets. Both Spencer and uh, Kessler are both on Twitter. But that's actually the white civil rights discourse uh, has been there uh, from the start. So he, so Kessler's kind of tricky uh, in one sense because he's very good at playing up something that sounds reasonable, right? I have the right to free speech. Whites have civil rights. You know, why are you taking away our ability to speak in public? Uh, and like all, you know, forms of denial, but different forms of rhetoric. It's most effective when you draw on something that has a grain of truth mixed with something that's simply untrue, right? This is classic in the study of uh, genocide, for example. This is what genocidaires do. I mentioned the tribunal where I testified and there was uh, Nguyen Gia was 
Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge's brother number two. He, he explicitly drew on these sorts of things where he would say, well, what about U.S. bombing? Uh, what about these longer histories that implicate other countries, which is all true. But in doing that, he would divert away from his own responsibility. So with Ke- going back to Kessler, uh, you know, it's the same sort of strategy. So he would say, well, I'm not racist. But then, uh, you know, he would pin a tract in Vidare, which is an online platform, promotes white genocide uh, conspiracy theories. He would go on there and he actually said, he wrote an article saying, yes, there's white genocide going on. Uh, He went on national public radio in 2018, right before they had Unite the Right 2, and he began to draw on a number of people who espouse explicitly racist views, you know, he's being interviewed on national public radio. So even as he, there's a grain of truth that he's trying to fight for uh, free speech, which is something that, uh, you know, in the U.S., there's a long tradition of supporting it. It varies in different countries throughout the world. And he has a lawsuit that continues to go on. So there's a grain of truth to that. But the truth of the matter is he's long been someone who's espoused far-right extremist views, even as he's often mixed them up in more palatable uh, language. So his, his story is interesting, and it's ongoing. At one point, he claimed to have moved away from the movement, uh, as he put it, and he seems to be now bubbling back up uh, and being more vocal. But I, you know, the, the question is a good one because it raises lots of other issues about how people enter into these movements, what are their trajectories, uh, and also how they end up leaving movements, which in terms of uh, prevention is absolutely key as well. You mentioned earlier the concept of hate. I was wondering if you could perhaps speak to why it's problematic to write these people off as just haters. Yeah, thanks so much for asking that question. That's uh, that's absolutely it's important in general, and it's you know it's an important part of the book. Uh, so if the first chapter of the book, uh, the introduction is called The Snake, second chapter is called uh, Charlottesville Teach-In, and the third chapter is actually called The Hater. And again, that chapter is uh, set in the classroom with dialogue as I'm teaching about uh, sort of the lessons of the past, how they inform the present. But we take up the discourse, the trope of the hater, because what happens is, and this happened in my classroom, and it happens all the time uh, when I give talks about extremism and uh, genocide and related issues, people want to dismiss this wide spectrum of extremists uh, as crazed uh, haters, uh, people who are mentally ill, uh, you know, they say they're racist, uh, haters going to hate, uh, so on and so forth. The notion of sort of the freak, these ideas circulate widely. Uh, they're talked about in popular culture. If you go back to, for example, the statements that then President Trump made after different attacks, he would often, you know, the Tree of Life attack, the Walmart attack. In Charlottesville, he briefly touched upon this. He said a few different things. But if you look at his his language with different attacks, it almost always goes down to this person's unstable, mentally ill, it's a racist, an anti-Semite. So that language fixes and tries to explain what's taking place in a manner that individualizes. So it says that it's something within this individual, you know, he's a racist, she's a racist, that lead them to carry out these attacks to do these bad things. So instead of talking about discourses about race, instead of talking about social structure, instead of talking about the history of racism, we, we end up talking about racist. And it's, you know, these are kind of thin, they contain, again, a grain of truth, 
but they're thin one word answers or calling someone evil, same thing. They're thin one word answers that don't really increase our understanding of what's taking place, even if on some sort of moral level expression of outrage, you know, it fits the moment. And what's a little bit ironic is that many far right actors, they like it. They say it's great. You know, we get characterized. They, in one sense, they, I'm sure they don't like it, but they say if people just dismiss us as a bunch of crazed KKK neo-Nazis, they're not really looking at what we're doing and they don't understand the real threat. They don't understand that we're organizing. So, the, you know, this is the use of reductive language, uh, like calling people racist, haters, what have you, uh, has a bunch of pro- is problematic in a number of different ways. Uh, and it sort of goes back, uh, if we go back to the Charlottesville teaching, uh, and also what my students were discussing in terms of understanding Charlottesville and the longer history of white power in the U.S., it's absolutely critical to, you know, this is part of the essence of critical thinking, to historicize events that, as you noted before, are otherwise rendered as exceptional, and to look at structures that produce those events as opposed to just focusing on agency uh, and the individualization of something that's systemic. And one, one other last little wave to the U.S. Uh, and things that are going on here is you know, sort of post-George Floyd, people here are now talking about structural racism. So, you know, structural racism, systemic uh, racism, uh, systemic white power, structural white power, you know, these clusters clusters of terms overlap uh, in different ways. But whereas these terms were being used by some people, you know, some academics, activists, and others uh, prior to George Floyd, prior to Trump, uh, and even critical race theory, which is demonized and everyone's now heard about it in the U.S., it was it was not on the radar, so to speak. It was something that was more peripheral, and it's now become mainstream uh, in the U.S. You know, and here's another great irony. Uh, far-right extremists often talk about shifting the Overton window or changing the narrative. Uh, they speak about a battle over metapolitics uh, that links back to so-called cultural Marxist, uh, you know, that dates back to the Frankfurt School. Well, you know, they shifted through their actions and through Trump's actions, they actually shifted the narrative, so to speak, so that people are now talking more about structural racism in the U.S. than they have in recent history, maybe dating back to the civil rights movement. So, uh, yeah, I guess the narrative uh, and the Overton window have been shifted in some ways that are quite contrary to the goals of uh, far-right extremists. Speaking of cultural Marxism, one of the texts that's uh, referred to in the book is Adorno's essay on education after Auschwitz. And I wanted to ask you about education and the importance it, or the important role it plays in, in producing, a, I guess, a, a civil society, let's say, and, and contrasting education with the figure of the hater who's often construed as being, in some sense, disabled by their prejudice, uh, being uneducated. At the same time, when you look at figures like Spencer and others, they're actually, you know, there's at least some segment of what's understood to be the extreme right who are highly educated. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of education in your work and and in combating these sorts of ideas and prejudices, but also to address questions of um, class and power and how the the hatred, I guess, can be expressed in different dimensions and the extent to which those hatreds can be used to, as is the case with Trump, to actually establish some form of um, political power. You know, that, that's a, I should uh, 
say a great series of questions, I think, because I think you actually have a personal <laughs> issue there. Right? Um, you know, you sort of uh, brought up the issue of race and, you know, race versus class, you know, and you brought up Adorno. And I think the issue of dialogue is also implicit uh, in, in the question you're asking. So maybe just uh, quickly the second, I'll start with the second, and then I'll move back to Adorno. But one problem, and again, the 1619, are, are you familiar with the 1619 project? I don't know if sort of people beyond the US are familiar with this magazine issue. Yeah, out. broadly. I mean, I, I'm aware, I haven't read the, the, the actual text, but yes. So I don't need to explain what it is. But, you know, the key part of it is in terms of pedagogy, saying, we, you know, you have to pay attention to history of racism in the U.S. Effectively, you've got to go back to 1619 and look at this long history of, uh, you know, the oppression, subjugation system of apartheid that brutalized the black population in the U.S. You know, so this, I have, as I said, I'm fully in agreement with the need to deal with that history. And as I view, this is a really important thing. But as I said before, it also erases, there's an implicit erasure of indigenous experience. There's also an implicit erasure of the experience of non-whites uh, who are not, uh, who don't identify with or are not codified as black in the United States. And there are all sorts of histories of groups that suffered as well. And so this sort of speaks back to the argument I made that we need a larger truth commission on white supremacy. And I would say, actually, you could theoretically have a global commission, maybe a Russell commission, because this obviously is something that speaks to the experience of you know countries, uh, settler colonial countries all over the world. But besides my critique, there also are a number uh, of scholars who are focused on class, as you point out, as an issue and say that through a focus on uh, one identity position, there's an erasure of other identity positions, uh, including class as an issue. And I think that's a valid critique. I think ultimately, if we went back, and I, I don't know for sure, uh, to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the person who sort of pioneered the 1619 Project and said, well, what about class? What about indigenous experience? Uh, what about non-whites who aren't uh, identified or identify with uh, the racial category black in the U.S., uh, I think she would say, yeah, absolutely, we should pay attention to that. But my goal was to focus things on race. But what's happened in the U.S. is we focus so much now on race. And again, there's a lot of, it's very important, it was something that wasn't discussed, that we don't, we're also not talking about other issues like class, which then links into, for example, those identifying or identified as white who occupy disempowered class positions, some of whom, not all of whom, because there are a lot of ed highly educated, wealthy voters who supported Trump, but there were also the sort of stereotype was, you know, poor whites, uneducated whites supporting Trump. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of complexity, as you're saying, that's erased out of that. Um, so the question about class uh, and other identity positions is an absolutely critical one. And so flipping back to Adorno, uh, and I'd say, you know, if I think about the two in terms of my pedagogy, the two big influences, Hannah Arendt uh, and Adorno, and I, I always use that essay, Education After Auschwitz. And it's a bit, there's a long story. They came out, the Frankfurt School, uh, Adorno was a member of the Frankfurt School. Many of them were Jewish, which is how you get the cultural Marxism, Jewish conspiracy trope going in a lot of far right circles. But they came together with a uh, U.S. positivist psychologist to produce this book, The Authoritarian Personality. And it was kind of a, the reason I say it's a little bit ironic is because, you know, the Frankfurt School was heavily 
informed by Marxism, certainly, uh, though they had their own play on it. Uh, and what they were very focused on was figuring out ways to fight against forces of domination, oppression, you know, and they were saying, well, what can we do? The systems that are in place seem really hard to unsettle. Uh, and when they're unsettled, often in a big way, sometimes really bad things happen. So they looked to education. And what they were really promoting was the idea that by, by pushing critical thinking and enhancing people's critical self-awareness, they had different ways of talking about this, they would enable people on the individual level to gain the awareness to fight back against these uh, structures and social forces that dominated them and and the extreme were taken to, you know, were taken to the extreme and the Holocaust and Auschwitz is essay labels. And I would say going back to the U.S., uh, you know, we see another iteration. And if Adorno were alive, I'm sure he would have been writing a lot uh, about similar things seeming to go on. My book actually concludes, in contrast to the snake, uh, with the bird, uh, which is a metaphor that comes from Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize address, the writer Toni Morrison, her Nobel Prize address, I think it was 1993. And it's a metaphor of dialogue and understanding. And I, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about that more. I don't want to go on too long. I've been answering this question quite a bit. But I think to do the third part of your question in terms of how prevention, the reason Morrison and the bird are important is because far-right extremism can't just be combated through uh, force, though, you know, that's certainly one part of a strategy where maybe you have law enforcement, there are some problems with that at times, of course, uh, you have doxing, you have all these different mechanisms, sanctions, ostracism, and that's all well and good and effective uh, often. But ultimately, uh, true prevention comes through uh, the sort of critical pedagogy that Adorno was pushing, but also the sort of bottom line is we all need to be able to understand what's going on, the views, as you said before, as we discussed before, not simply dismissing our extremists as crazed maniacs or stupid idiots, what have you, but accepting that they have positions that are thought out. And ironically, like Richard Spencer, uh, I believe his master's thesis drew on the Frankfurt School. Isn't that ironic? And so actually a lot of uh, a handful of far-right extremists draw on critical theory and say, we're the ones who are doing the critical thinking. So ultimately, to combat these sorts of views, they have to be understood. And by dialogue, I don't necessarily mean sitting around and talking, but trying to understand the position of people who hold views that we may think are abhorrent or diametrically opposed to our values, but to be able to sit there and understand them. And that sort of understanding then creates the possibility for change. And I should note to sort of loop back to the authoritarian personality project and the grand, grand irony of uh, and the end is that that project was formulated to try and fight uh, to uh, sort of promote tolerance. Uh, and it was it was this sort of goal that the people uh, in the Frankfurt School and that were involved in authoritarian personality uh, were seeking to undertake that far-right extremists then took up as this sort of metapolitical cultural Marxist battle. Ultimately, these are terms that get bandied about. People don't really understand the origin, which is a, which is a big problem. So the you know the side of this topic is full of lots of ironies, but I think the point you the sort of go back to your question and just sort of hit a critical pedagogy is absolutely critical as a uh, prevention tool. Really, we need a broader understanding of uh, white supremacy uh, and a broader understanding of the histories that produce these moments. 
And we also need to attend to other factors like class. And, and you know, in the end, in keeping with the spirit of uh, Tony Morrison, uh, we need to be able to engage in dialogue. And the reason I conclude with the bird uh, is in contrast to the state languages that dominate a press uh, that Tony Morrison talks about in her Nobel Prize address. Uh, we need to have multi-vocality, uh, to have multiple people speaking, uh, and not to have the suppression of language, but to have language uh, as a liberating tool uh, that goes hand in hand with critical self-awareness. The book also highlights the importance of having a, a moral compass and a moral imagination and being responsible when deploying language and being careful in articulation and advocating a kind of critical pedagogy as a kind of way of addressing those matters. However, it seems to be the case that rather than these sorts of things developing, what has also occurred is um, the flourishing of conspiracy theories and although it's um, not a feature of the book, you've referred to it previously, the QAnon conspiracy. Can you relate its flourishing in the last few years and the ways in which perhaps it displaces some kind of more critical um, social analysis in the United States and, I guess, elsewhere? You know, that's another, uh, anyways, great question, an interesting question, and, you know, a question that really hasn't been studied uh, in really deep ways yet. QAnon is interesting because, you know, it sort of begins to emerge in the States around the time of Charlottesville. It's just beginning to sort of bubble up. It plays on these longstanding deep state conspiracies and language uh, that uh, had been around for a long time that goes back to New World Order discourses that goes on back to sort of Jewish globalist language and Jewish conspiracy language, which actually gets then reworked back in to uh, QAnon and different strands of it. QAnon is big, diffuse, right? I mean, it's not, there's not a singular QAnon ideology if the sort of core of it, if you had to say, it would be the sort of idea of deep state, state actors who were trying to do these really bad things to kids, pedophiles, uh, and also seeking to maintain their power by, uh, as it eventually came out in 2020 into the present, uh, by toppling, uh, illegitimately toppling Trump from power. In terms of critical thinking, and this sort of goes back to what we were just talking about, you know, it's people and QAnon, people look at discourse, at language, and they actually think about it, they interpret it. And so there, again, is this sort of, I don't know if I want to call it critical thinking, but certainly thoughtfulness, not in the Hannah Arendt sense, I should say, it would be thoughtlessness in that sense. But there's a thinking component to it. And people, I think, are energized by trying to unpack symbols, mysteries, uh, and so there's this way in which, and then also there's this idea in terms of, uh, you know, people finding meanings in their meaning in their lives that somehow they found a truth and they become part of a larger movement and cause. And they become part of a community online and discourse, you know, it used to be in Twitter and Facebook. Now it's gone off into different telegram and other, other sorts of uh, forums for the most part, but they're all, as you're suggesting, you know, there are all these different ways in which, People are thinking, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to label it critical thinking because I don't know from many of the people who are advocates of, of QAnon how deeply they think about this. But there is a thinking activity in, in terms of, as I said before, dialogue and sort of understanding other perspectives. Again, just as is the case with far-right extremists who are talking about metapolitics, I think with QAnon, it's absolutely critical to try and 
understand in a deep way their perspective and their views and to understand why they've sort of bubbled up and become a worldwide movement. Now that that's in part linked, uh, as I sort of mentioned before, uh, in terms of those risk factors to upheaval. Uh, during times of upheaval, people search even more for meaning as their lives are disrupted. So the pandemic and economic collapse has been a huge uh, catalyst and sort of, in, you know, sort of uh, amplifying the QAnon movement. And I expect that over the next year or two, it's going to diminish significantly, assuming that in the United States context, I know it's worldwide and has different manifestations in different places, uh, you know, that we continue to have Trump. Uh, not really trying to mobilize them. But to sort of circle back to critical pedagogy, if in the end we're teaching people how to think critically, and again, the first step of thinking critically, at least from my perspective, is you have to suspend opinion and focus on analysis. So, you know, when I teach, I often say, you know, I don't want to know your opinion about any of these topics. And you don't want to know my opinion, but what we want to do together is to analyze them, understand the positions, understand where these ideas and arguments come from, and then everyone can make their own decision and have their own opinions. This is actually exactly what uh, Hannah Arendt pushed in her philosophy, I, and it sort of circles back to Eichmann. You know, Eichmann was someone who was thoughtless, who thought in, uh, Eichmann was the Nazi bureaucrat she wrote about in the book, uh, Eichmann and Jerusalem, uh, report on the banality of evil. Uh, but it was his, his thinking and cliches and that sort of thinking and cliches is exactly what the Frankfurt school was also aimed to subvert through giving people the ability, uh, to think deeply, to understand social forces, and then ultimately to sort of create, act and engage with others in the public sphere. And so that sort of brings us back to the idea of dialogue again. So, you know, in a, in a strange way, we, we've got Toni Morrison, uh, Adorno, Frankfurt School, Hannah Arendt, all sort of converging on this, the importance of the public sphere and what the, all of them see as the ultimate danger is a situation in which that public sphere of dialogue and thinking and exchange of ideas is erased. And for her, that was the essence of totalitarianism was a place in which uh, there was atomization, uh, there was no public sphere to dialogue. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the spaces and the bubbles that are created by social media, you know, there's one of the big dangers. I always say, everyone needs to look at a variety of different sources, including ones they may find abhorrent to understand how the same events are being depicted in multiple ways. And most people don't do that. And, you know, with our Twitter feed, Facebook, what have you algorithms, we're just seeing the things that uh, we and our friends uh, and our, uh, the people we follow or are following, uh, we just get those views. We don't get alternative views. And that ultimately in terms of QAnon, in terms of far right extremism, uh, in terms of any type of uh, extremism that emerges, that sort of critical thinking, engagement and dialogue in the public sphere and an ability to engage and listen to people with different views, that to me is sort of the heart of democratic being. And I think Toni Morrison, Hannah Arendt and Adorno, uh, each in their own way, thought the same thing. And to them, that was uh, something that they worried about being crushed uh, at moments like uh, you know, under the Nazis, but also more recently uh, in the United States under Trump. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. 
if people would like to follow Dr. Hinton, he is on Twitter at Alex L. Hinton, and the book is It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the US. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Andy, we are out of here, but uh, it is Radiothon Month at 3CR, so if people enjoyed the show and our other shows, they can donate to 3CR by going to givenow.com.au and searching for Yeah, Nah, Passaran. Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. It was an exceptionally well-organised rally by war and the same rallies took place around the nation. But yet there was almost no reporting on it on the day by the mainstream media. In fact, it was really just community radio stations and props to this radio station for being one of the few to really give voice to the war organisers for the rally here in Nam, Melbourne. In terms of truth-telling, in terms of honest, ethical truth-telling, that's really all there was. And when I saw the mainstream media the next day, one of the hardest things was just the fact that Prince Philip was trending. There was just this idolisation of colonial dinosaurs, really. I don't know why even alternative mainstream outlets seem to really centre the death of this guy that had a pretty long life compared to black people in this country. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars 
the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations, which has led to an uncritical foreign policy. It's time this changed. To make a submission, go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. That's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au. Submissions close on the 31st of July. IPAN is a 3CR supporter.